You are now tuned in to the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for conversations on hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audiences. Today's guest is Neil Scobie. Neil Scobie is a PhD candidate and a part time instructor in Western University's Faculty of Information and Media Studies. He also teaches turntablism at the University of Guelph School of Fine Art and Music. Neil's dissertation, supervised by Dr. Keir Kitely, explores the roots of hip-hop culture in Toronto, particularly its connection to the Caribbean diaspora and the sound system culture. Recent publications have appeared in Contemporary Musical Expressions in Canada, McGill-Queens University Press, and The Spaces and Places of Canadian Popular Culture in the Canadian Scholars Press. Prior to academia, Neil spent 20 years in Vancouver's hip-hop scene as a DJ and producer. In 1989, he created his In Effect show at UBC's CITR 101.FM, one of Canada's earliest hip-hop radio shows. As a producer, his collaborations received Juno nominations for Rap Recording of the Year in 2003 as well as 2005. In this conversation, we end up speaking on his dissertation on Caribbean and Canadian identities and the work of Mishi Mi, as well as some of his current work on the early Toronto hip-hop scene, including his doctoral research on early Toronto hip-hop, really that first decade of Toronto's hip-hop culture, as well as a piece that he ended up publishing recently on Jay McGee, a pioneering voice of Toronto hip-hop. That said, please welcome to the show, Neil Scobie. First off, man, I, I said this at the beginning of the call here, but I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to speak to me here today. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, 100%. So there's there's going to be a fair amount of people inevitably that are listening to this podcast who simply have no idea who Mishimi is. Um, are you able to give a brief overview of, of who Mishimi was and the role that she ended up playing in the Toronto hip-hop scene? I know it's a lot to ask, but just kind of briefly. Well, sure. Um, uh, the, of course, I got a text. I was in Toronto. Uh, this is still, uh, still active to this day. Um, but uh, I think impo- most importantly, she was one of the first artists in Canada to really make a name for herself, both locally and abroad. Um, remember, you know, in the mid '80s when she was getting started. Uh, hip hop and rap music was still very much an underground phenomenon. Except for, say, Run DMC's Walk the Stay, Salt and Pepper's Push It, there wasn't a whole lot of rap sure. on commercial radio. So it was still very much a, uh, an underground phenomenon. And, uh, she came along at, a, at, at this time and, <clears throat> excuse me, and made a name first as a battle rap. Uh, most notably, there was a battle that she entered in Toronto in March of 1987. It was part of Ron Nelson's uh, New York Invades TLO series. Um, New where York he would versus invite, Toronto kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would he would advertise. He, basically, he would invite uh, New York acts to come to Toronto to perform, but he would advertise it as a battle, right? He kind of, um, I guess. Maybe it was uh, an advertising ploy um, that uh, you know would would perhaps bring more more people to you know to, to see because it's a battle. It's not just a concert; it's a battle. Plus, you have local acts, so you know if, if you're somebody in the crowd that is going to watch, you have a vested interest in perhaps seeing your you know local brethren 
uh, win, you know, and defend <laughs> defend your uh, the city's honor and so forth. Yeah. And you see me, uh, she battled a rapper from Brooklyn, her name was Sugar Love, and uh, she midway through the uh, the battle, she broke into patois, and the crowd went nuts. And this is significant because it really was the f- one of the first times that put Mishimi on the local radar, right? Yeah. Um, but it's also significant because she's one of the first artists anywhere to infuse sort of a reggae, uh, dancehall reggae sonic signifiers into her music, both with with patois and reggae style beats. Um, at a time again when this was not really a really a thing, you, you had Boogie Down Productions doing it a little bit. You had artists like Shinehead in London, England. You had Ashley and Daddy Freddie, but you know, reggae rap, that sort of, uh, that hybrid was not really a style that was popular, not until the 90s. Uh, like artists like Supercat, uh, I think Biggie, one of Biggie's first records was on a Supercat record. You had KRS performing with Shabba Ranks, and then later you had uh, Shaggy and Sean Paul became superstars, and, and they were, you know, dancehall uh, reggae artists. Sure. So in the 80s, uh, you know, a 17-year-old girl, from Toronto, uh, being a, no, a noted and, and, and fierce battle rapper that was also producing records with BDP, who was the hottest group at the time, one of them anyway. Yeah. I mean, and picture it today. Can you picture, try to picture a 17-year-old girl, 16, 17-year-old girl, making records with whoever the, the hottest artists are out of New York right now, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and they're from Toronto. And, and they're also doing it in a style that's kind of new at the time. You know, she she broke a lot of ground in that way. Yeah, and I then listen on, to those on early top of that, records where like KRS will introduce the cut, and it's and I know you talk about it in the paper as well, but the the impact I think that that would have, and I, I come from a later generation, I definitely didn't grow up in this period of time, I wasn't aware of these records, but the I think the the impact that that sort of um, sponsorship or cosign would have had, um, I think is immense. Like, yeah, as you said, BDP and KRS are not only some of the hottest rappers in New York, but they're, they're well-respected for between in like the hip hop community. They're not just selling records and and hot rappers, but they're, they're very well-respected in the hip hop community. And that cosign is, is so loud and clear on the first few kind of seconds of that Mishimi record. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so going back to the original question about, you know, who she is uh, as an artist, I got to also mention that she's uh, she has great longevity in the game. You know, she's still recording to this day. She just uh, released an album last year, Revenge of the Yadgal, I think it's it's called. And um, but in that time, in that 30, 35 year time frame, um, she recorded numerous albums. She's done television uh, she also experimented with uh, Ragadath, uh, sort of a, a rock hybrid band. Um, she p- performed and toured with for many years in the 90s, uh, and another band too, One Day After. So, I mean, she's, uh, she's sort of like a renaissance woman in a sense. You know, she's done radio and recording and acting, and I mean, she's done it all, and she's still and she's prolific and continues to this day. So, I guess in a nutshell, <laughs> that's uh that's why that's why people should should be aware of her at, at, at the very least 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I One of the things that you just mentioned there that I had no idea, and I, I'm studying Canadian hip-hop myself, and I, I consider myself fairly well-versed in the scene at this point, um, but you mentioned Reggae Death, and I had no idea that that band existed or that Mishi Mi had kind of an involvement there. Um, and yeah, as I was reading through the, the paper, I would go back and I would listen to a lot of these records that you were talking about, and... It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the sound that I would gravitate to the most, but it's really interesting to see her kind of in that, in, in that kind of sonic palette, um, something that I, I never thought that I would hear Mishimi kind of be in. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting just how diverse of a career she's had. Um, and that was something I, I had no idea. I knew the early records that she did with L.A. Love, um, and I, I knew some of the records that came out afterwards, but I had no idea the, the depth of that diversity. Yeah, and, and that's another thing that she should be... It wasn't really new. Um, you know, the, the productions of Rick Rubin and Larry Smith did with Randy and the Beastie Boys in the 80s was, you know, some, somewhat of a rock-rap hybrid, but... You know, bands that came later in the late, later in the late 90s and early 2000s, like Corn and Wind Biscuit and stuff, Raggedy preceded that, right? And, um, whereas in the 80s, the, the rock rap hybrid, it wasn't, it wasn't a live band. Like the Beastie Boys, when they were doing like the, the rock sounding records, um, No Sweet No Brooklyn and so forth, it, it wasn't really a, a, like a, like a band. They wouldn't perform on stage with a band. It was still very much, there was a DJ involved, right? Yeah. But 100%. In the, yeah. But the whole Limp Biscuit thing that came much like later in the nineties, uh, with a band rapping with a band, rap singing, whatever you want to call it with a band. Um, you know, and it was wildly popular. Well, Ragged Death preceded that. And that's not to say that Ragged Death influenced Corn and Limp Biscuit and, and that ilk, but you know, I, I I think I, I think like years matter when you when, when you're writing about music history, it, uh, whether it's something came out in '93 or '97 or 2001, it matters. Like it, I, I think it matters yeah. to get to get dates right, and and uh, it's just a fact that Ragged Up preceded that stuff. And perhaps if they were in the states, they would have you know got uh, a lot more um, traction. But uh, that, that's that's not the case. Yeah. Given the fact that your own background resides mostly in Vancouver's hip hop history, I always find it interesting that you've kind of parked your research in in Toronto. Um, I wanted to ask, I guess, why and and why specifically cover Mishi Mi as kind of a subject for your for your masters? Well, when I was doing my undergrad um, back in, like, I start I, I started I went to school late. I was 37 when I went back to school. I did a media studies degree at Vancouver Island University. And it was about my second or third year when I realized that there was uh, scholarship, academic research on hip hop. I didn't know that that was a thing, even though I had read uh, Trisha Rose's Black Noise back in the 90s. But I didn't read it as an academic book. I read it as a book on hip hop, right? It was just, yeah. Well, I don't remember what press it was on, but I didn't really think of it as an academic book. It was just a great book on, on, on hip hop, hip hop culture and history. And, um, I came across a book, Joseph Schloss's Making Beats, which was all about hip hop sampling. And I read that and I was like, this is a thing. You know, <laughs> you can write about, uh, about this sort of thing in a, in a scholarly context. And so that, that planted the seed for me to, you know, to go to grad school. I thought, well, maybe I could contribute to this 
in some way. But instead of doing something that's already been done, like hip-hop sampling or hip-hop DJing or whatever, which I was familiar with because that's that's what I came up doing in the culture was a DJ and a little bit of producing. I thought, well, maybe I could come from a Canadian angle. And there wasn't a lot, and still isn't, I mean, as you can attest, there's not a lot of Canadian research, research on Canadian hip-hop. Um, it's, it's increasing, definitely, over the last few years. Um, but there's, there's a lot still to be covered. So in 2014, I'm doing my master's, and I thought... I remember, to, I remember the, the, the discussion I had with my, uh, with my thesis advisor, Jesse Stewart, and I asked him, do you know if there's anything being done on Mishimi? Now, Mishimi is important to me because of everything I mentioned 10 minutes ago. Yeah. But also, when I was a kid growing up on the West Coast, listening to rap music, listening to hip-hop, and trying to absorb it as much as possible, she was the first Canadian rapper I had ever heard of. And the fact that she had accomplished all these, you know, um, you know, all these, I don't want to say firsts, but all, all these, um, there were attributes about her that I thought were worth, were well worth exploring um, as an artist. And uh, the fact that, you know, she recorded some of the first rap records in Canada and then she was co-signed by DDP and, and was signed to an American label so early in 1988 with First Priority and then the whole Ragged Up thing, you know, there's so much that she's done but yet there wasn't anything really significant written on her besides sure. perhaps a few paragraphs here or there. And so that's what led me to, to write about Mishimi because I figured, well, she's an important figure. There doesn't appear to be anything written on her. So, and, you know, third or fourth down the line, I'm a fan, right? You know, yeah, fair uh, enough. I, was, I was a fan, you know, so it, it was, it was an interesting topic that I thought needed to be researched. It, it reminded me a little bit of when I was a kid and I wanted to do a hip hop radio show in Vancouver because it didn't exist. And I thought, well, somebody, why doesn't somebody do it? Why not me? I'll do it. It's, it that, that's fa a fascinating thing. How about I do a radio show? And then I tried to do it and I got the show and, and Bob's your uncle. And so the same thing kind of applied a few years ago is that, well, nobody's really done any research or, and, and, and uh, scholarly work on, on Nishimi. So, you know, why not me? <laughs> right? So sure. maybe I can do it. Maybe I can, maybe I can uh, contribute to uh, scholarships on Canadian hip hop by doing this. And that's how that's how I kind of got into that that lane of of, do, of like the Toronto lane, even though I'm not from Toronto. And I, there, I would say that there's some now that I'm doing my doctoral research on early Toronto hip hop, which is Michini, but also everything else that was going on in in the eighties. Yeah. Um, which I, I guess we can get into uh, uh, soon enough. Um, now, I, I, I wanted to continue going down that road doing Toronto for a couple of reasons. Um, again, not a whole lot has been written on it. Uh, there's a lot of research that's come out. Uh, there's a lot of great research that's come out. You know, Mark Campbell, Charity Marsh, my, my thesis advisor, Jesse, Jesse Stewart. Uh, but a lot of it centers on the 90s and, and, and more recent developments in, in Canadian hip-hop. I think and that podcast so, that Thrust ended up putting together, that Views for uh, views Before the Six, I think that's one, oh, of, one of these yeah. my kind of primary go-to resources for that history. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, can't forget Views Before the Six, Big Please, and, and, and Thrust. 
And uh, yeah, that and that has been that's been monumental too. In fact, I've, I've learned a lot <laughs> from that podcast. So have I. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, especially uh, particularly with the with respect to the sound systems. Uh, that uh, that um, so I yeah I'll, I'll I'll be the first to say big up these from the six for sure. From uh, from a scholarly perspective and like things that are published sure. um I, much. I, I i i not much and so i i thought well maybe i can contribute, contribute to that and there's some advantages and disadvantages not being from toronto first off if i were doing the exact same type of research but on vancouver hip-hop practically everybody that i would need to interview are a phone call or two away just because i spent so many years in the scene there and so in, in toronto though that's a little bit harder you know, in order to, to, to try to contact somebody that I want to interview, it might take, you know, several emails and phone calls and tracking them down. And then they don't know who I am and they don't know who are you and I have to explain my research. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes people don't want to talk to you. Some, most people are, most people will be interviewed. Some people just say no, don't want to. Um, but then I'd say one of the advantages of being, in, being from Vancouver and not being from Toronto is that I don't have any, I don't have any horses in the race. I don't have, right? I don't have any preconceptions of, or I shouldn't say any. I, I, I have very little preconceptions of the Toronto history. Um, because I wasn't part of it. I wasn't lit, I wasn't living or contributing to it back in the eighties, the, the, the time frame that I'm, I'm researching. So there's sort of a fresh, uh, element as, as an outsider kind of coming in and observing rather than being part of it like I was in Vancouver and like you might not be able to see the forest from the trees where, where you're in the scene. You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. Throughout the, throughout the text here, um, in terms of the, the masters on Mishi Mi, um, you make this argument and I think very convincingly that Mishi Mi's story kind of has to be told through the lens of identity and culture, that her cultural mix is so integral to who Mishi Mi is that you can't really understand her story without that basic fa- foundation kind of laid out first. Um, in the conclusion, you seem to suggest that other writers covering other artists with similar roots require this lens as well. Um, so for myself, as someone who is writing these stories and will inevitably be writing the story of Mishimi, albeit in a much smaller capacity, I often wrestle with just how to, I guess, communicate these stories most accurately and most efficiently. Now, I've chosen to leave out identity and cultural backgrounds in the majority of cases and kind of kind of uh, tended to sway towards doing more, I guess, plain narratives of this happened, this happened, this happened, here's what the person was feeling uh, between those kind of transitions. Do you think a Mishimi story could be told without this kind of cultural and, and um, I guess, backdrop? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think there are many ways that you can perform the research or, or tell a story. And, and from what I understand, you're you're doing uh you're conducting a lot of interviews so it's it's an oral history it's an oral history correct? yeah 100 yeah and so so people will will choose to talk about what they want to talk about right um yeah. perhaps some artists want to delve more into um you know the, the, the cultural influences or, or what have you about their music and and, and or videos or how, however they express their themselves through, through their art um, more than others. Um, with Nishi Me though, I, I, I guess I could, I guess I could have tried to, to do the research 
by maybe like just strictly a textual analysis, just doing the lyrics or or, or um or uh, like uh, like a like a historical approach in, in that sense. Um, you know, this record came out at this time, and this video came out at this time, and then this happened, and this happened. But to me, it's it's for for somebody like Michelle where she presents these different sides, these these like the Canadian Canadian side and the Jamaican side, and it, it appeared to be so important to her art that it seemed to be something that I should be looking at. So that's why I kind of took that approach. Now, uh, going back to the beginning of the question, I, I wouldn't say that it, it's required uh, to to dissect anybody's art in this way. But and and uh, and I'm by no means uh, you know alone here. I, I know Char- I know Charity Marsh has done work on um, identity and Aboriginal hip hop yeah. in Canada. So and she's done great work in that regard. So um, that would be somebody else doing similar work. But, but there's there's something about hip hop that kind of lends itself to to uh, artists expressing um a, a, a different cultural sides or um different ways of expressing themselves culturally i suppose sure. uh in uh, more so than other genres uh, at least in canada anyway like it's very common and in in toronto in particular for artists like Missy me and uh mc rumble from rumble and strong uh cardinal for shower of course dream warriors to to present uh, right, these, these these different uh, lyrical or, or sonic signifiers that point to Jamaica or um, point to uh, Guyana or, or, or other countries that, that they may have familial ties, uh, right? Um, and and then on top of that, uh, it's so common in in hip hop music to talk about where you're from. Right. Murray Foreman has talked about this. He calls it the extreme local about uh, emphasizing place within one's lyrics. Yeah. And um, you know, most hip hop artists that I listen to, uh, you know, place matters. But you know, I've never really heard Rakim talk about anything other than perhaps Long Island or New York. He does like, and and maybe that's a personal family history that doesn't go back to the Caribbean just one generation before. Right, a lot of a lot of Canadian hip hop artists, uh, especially in Toronto, have ties to the Caribbean, and a lot of uh, artists that were important in Toronto's hip hop scene's development in the '80s were either Jamaican immigrants or children of Jamaican immigrants. So those familial ties are are either first or second generation, whereas the history of African Americans is, is largely different. You know, they have familial ties in the United States that go back new, uh, like several. Several, several generations, right? Uh, we know the history, of, and we know the history there, right? Um, so perhaps we, with with American artists, you're not going to hear them talk about places other than than their city or immediate neighborhoods. Whereas Canadian artists may talk about their immediate neighborhood, but also their city, and then the country that they are from, or their parents or grandparents. Are from. You know, there, there's a lyric, there's a lyric, one of my favorite lyrics, and it's three words that Mishimi says. She says it in bed, yeah, bubble. She says, I'm from Jane. And it's such a potent lyric because it 
she's expressing a, uh, a Toronto identity, but also a Jamaican identity because of Jane, short for Jane and Finch, is a neighborhood that has produced a lot of hip-hop acts, Dream Warriors are one, but it's also a neighborhood that has a large Jamaican population. So just by saying those three words, and emphatically saying, I'm from Jane, motherfuckers know the name, <laughs> they'll continue the, continue the line, she's, she's stating that she's from Jane and Finch, and Toronto, and she's Jamaican, all in one pithy little short sentence. And um, and I think that speaks volumes for what you know that sort of encapsulates who she is as an artist. Uh, sure. She articulates this this identity of being from Toronto, but also Canadian and also Jamaican. It's it's all together. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I think ultimately when you kind of tell the story in this way, you're much more interested in seeing who Mishimi is rather than the story of, of what she did. Um, was that always, and I guess approaching it from this lens, was that always the way that you uh, kind of approached this topic? Like when you kind of started your um, thinking about what you were going to do for your master's and you landed on this idea of Mishimi, was it evident right from the very beginning that this is how you were going to kind of structure it or did you want to cover it in, I guess, a more traditional way originally? Well, I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if I would say that I was more interested in what she did. It's just that what she did and, and who she is, are, they're, they're hard to separate because her identity is so much in the forefront of, of her art. Right. So like I was saying earlier, I mean, you could, you could try to, you could, Try to dissect her 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 artwork as uh, you know in a linear sense or maybe in a less sort of cultural analysis sense, but I don't think it would be as as rich. Um, I mean, I, I was writing a, ma- a master's thesis, so if it was just you know a couple pages in a book, perhaps uh, perhaps it could be done. But I, I felt the need to really look at well, why is she wearing both dancehall queen clothing and a the hip hop kind of tracksuit in a video. Why is she why is she wearing both? Why in the in the Bad Gal Bubble video, why is why is there a parka with the word Canada emblazing on the back? That's not an accident. Right? But at this in the same video, she's wearing dance hall queen kind of clothing and going in between rapping and patois. Right? I <laughs> these are all very conscious decisions uh that worth analyzing. It's not an accident that she's doing both and code switching between the, you know, uh, the just sort of the regular, I don't want to say regular, but the, the typical Canadian, you know, uh, speaking voice and, uh, and the patois, she's going back and forth. That uh, for me, you know, before I even started the research, that to me is interesting. And, 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 uh, and I thought, well, the, well, why is this happening? Why, why is she making a, an effort to project these different identities? Um, so, you know what she did and who she is. I, I, I don't think that you can really separate the two, and, and they're, they're really part of the you know the one and the same. Yeah, her identity um, and and how she chooses to express herself. 
Yeah, th- throughout her life, you can see her identities kind of conflict and, and complement each other vibrantly throughout her music and, and her art. You mentioned the music videos and a lot of the fashion statements that she ended up using. Um, the thesis really focuses on two identities, however, and you, you mentioned them here a few times, but Canadianness uh, and this sense of Jamaicanness. Um, but I wanted to kind of park in, uh, on the American identity and talk a little bit about that and, and where it fits in here. You argue in the paper that she's resistant to the American tag, but she's also credited with being kind of an early adopter of hip-hop north of the border, and you state that she takes trips when she's young to the States, and you can see that this clearly had an influence on her. She has a love for American identity um, and culture, but where does this kind of American identity fit, fit in? Because it really feels like there's three identities taking place, or maybe even four if you count hip-hop identity really being one uh one in there as well i i don't know if it's so much an american identity or of, of uh, an american influence um yes she had uh had family that she would visit in new york and that's where she learned a lot about hip-hop culture back in the 80s and would bring it back to toronto um, I, I don't know if that, I don't know if that would count as as an identity per se. Hey, have you have you traveled abroad? Um, to the states, but I haven't traveled uh, internationally. Yeah. Or I can, wait, found... I've traveled internationally, but I haven't traveled overseas to like Europe or Africa or any place really exotic. Right. Um, I when I've been to, to Europe uh, and um, I've been to Brazil as well. My wife is from Sao Paulo. And uh, if I'm when I'm talking to people on the street, they automatically assume I'm an American because I speak English and I don't sound like I'm British, right? But that, that but I'll be very quick to tell them that I'm not American, and that's not because I dislike America or anything, but it's I, I'm very quick to point out that I'm Canadian and that I'm we're not the same. We may speak the same language, and there's a lot of cultural similarities, but there's a lot of cultural differences. And I think that may actually manifest in her music as well. I don't want to make assumptions, but I, I'm, I, I think that's why in, um, you know, the lyric I just mentioned, she says, I'm from Jane, is to, is to notify listeners that she is from Toronto and she's from Canada and she has a genetic lineage. Uh, in other records elsewhere, she'll say that she's, uh, in, in, in clear terms that she's not American. And Meister Fresh West said the same thing and let your back on fly. I'm not, I'm not American, and and that's not to flag the U.S. or anything, but it's to to make a a distinct to make a statement that that we don't don't get don't get it twisted don't don't get, don't throw us in with the Americans. We are um, culture. We are we're Canadian. We're Canadians, right? So sure. I, I, so I I wouldn't say it's it's an American identity, but it's definitely an, an American influence. And what she did, like most. Uh, hip hop artist was kind of um, like 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 uh, internalize the the hip hop influences coming from New York, but adapt them to her immediate surroundings. Right, um, going back to Murray Foreman and the extreme local, like what how he says that uh, hip hop artists in different cities, so, you know, take Miami, Houston, L.A., London, England, wherever wherever hip hop started. To sprout up uh, in the 80s and, and 90s, artists were definitely influenced by by New York, and, and, and where most of the records were emanating from in the 80s. But then uh, applied it to their local surroundings, 
right? So um, take, for, exa- for example, you know, the whole G-Funk era that came out of L.A. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, you know, funk, uh, like Parliament Funkadelic and Zap and, and, and Prince and Electro and that, that sort of thing, they, they take those influences and, and put them into the music. And they would talk about riding low, uh, driving low riders. And, and you know, Ice-T talked about local gang culture. And so it was a way of, uh, articulating a local identity, but also being influenced by what was happening in New York. If you listen to uh, NWA's first record, their production was heavily influenced by Bomb Squad, right? But you know what they were talking about locally, you talking about cruising in a six four, like that that wouldn't have made any sense in New York. Nobody was driving around in a sixty four Impala in the Bronx. That was that was an LA thing. So so going back to Mishimi. I would say that it was an American influence tied into a, a Canadian and a Jamaican and a Toronto and, and, and what you said, a hip hop identity. I think that's actually a hip hop identity because, uh, you know, the way, the way that she dressed in her videos, you know, with the door knocker, Roxanne Chante style earrings and the tracksuits and LA love in the Jamaican funk video wearing what looks like sort of like a, a tailored Dapper Dan, tracksuit, you know, with his name emblazoned on the front. That, that was definitely like a New York thing that had been transferred to Toronto. But the whole uh, dance hall style, uh, I mean, that was something that she, that was more of like a local and um, and Jamaican flavor coming out in her music. Gotcha. Um, early in the thesis, you end up laying out some of the background of the Caribbean diaspora into Toronto and seem to make the argument that although this is clearly been a long process dating back centuries, it didn't really kick into full gear until the 1950s when particular parties like the NCA encouraged immigration from the West Indies into Canada and I guess relax some of the previous um, immigration conditions and laws that I guess to allow for such immigration to exist. Given the fact that this was such a new community, do you think that this had any role to play into why the Jamaican community in Toronto were so willing to take up hip-hop and blend these personalities? I'm not an expert in diasporic studies at all by any means, um, but I have read a few texts, but but it seems like no one would, no one uproots their life to move to a location abroad, say Paris, for example, just to grab McDonald's every day, right? There's there's almost a tourist-like eagerness to assimilate early on. And I think the more I think about it, the more it makes me think that this probably had something to do with why the reggae sounds kind of permeated Toronto hip-hop so heavily during the early years and why they were so kind of accustomed to blend these identities um, with something that is kind of native to the the location that they're currently at. Um, do you think that this has something to, to do with that? The fact that the the NCA and these kind of organizations and there was a push to, um, I guess, to have this um, these immigrations be played up heavily um, throughout the 20th century. So you have this kind of more modern or more um, kind of new community that's that's being formed do you think that that newness had anything to do with um why we see that reggae hip-hop blend well ron nelson told me something interesting i i, I back in 2015 when i interviewed him for my master's thesis he said that um the the reggae and the hip-hop scenes in toronto have never really been connected there's actually like a, a, a dividing line between the two, and they, they don't mesh um, 
at all. If you're in the reggae world, you're not really in the hip hop world and vice and vice versa. But I mean, that's not to say that there were, were an artist like Nishimi that, that adopted some sort of reggae styles. But reggae, you know, reggae community is, all, is also very quick to say she, that, and Nishimi said this in interviews, that she would be referred to by the reggae community as quote unquote the rapper. Right, like she wasn't quickly, she wasn't readily adopted by the reggae community because I, perhaps they they didn't at the maybe at the time they didn't see rap or hip hop as you know as as on their level. I, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, so the articulating the the reggae um, uh, identity signifiers in in the music was more of a personal choice. And um, I also got to say that um, while it was a conscious, there was a conscious effort on her part to articulate these styles, I think it also came very naturally because early in her life, uh, she was exposed to uh, women, uh, both in, in Jamaica when she, before she moved to Canada and when she was an elementary school uh, student in Toronto. Um, she was exposed to women like Miss Lou in Jamaica, who had a show on the J- on the Jamaican Broadcasting Corporation, the JBC, where she would sing and tell stories in patois. And in uh, and Nishimi was actually um, a uh, a member of the audience, a child in the audience. And like think think of think of how how much of an influence you'd have as a young as a as a child when you're on a television show and there's somebody speaking. Um, I mean, I can't speak as a Jamaican person because I'm not, but I mean, you know, as a child, we're, we're, as children, we're sponges and we really soak up these, these influences. So you take that influence and then you take the fact that Lillian Allen in Toronto visited Nishimi's elementary school when she was a child and was doing poetry in Patois. And so these are things that, that Nishimi, uh, you know, recognizes at a, at a young age that, oh, this is just, this is just something that they do that's natural to them and it's natural to me. So even though there was a conscious effort on her part to, to, uh, articulate this, to make an identity, it also came, uh, off as, as very natural. I mean, she could switch from, you know, just a regular conversational English to patois, like, like, like it was nothing. And there was a certain authenticity to that for for listeners, whereas there was rappers like Karis One, he he did the Jamaican accent at times, but he's not he wasn't born in Jamaica, right? Sure. It was something more it was something more inflected to him. Um, now there was a part of your question that I didn't understand the going to Paris theme was all. <laughs> well, <laughs> Could you, okay, you so that? yeah, I can. Uh, I hope I can. Um, Clearly, there's a sense of okay when the Jamaican uh, the Jamaican community in in Toronto is is relatively young. Um, let's put it that way. So it made okay. up of especially in the the 80s and 90s, uh, made up of a lot of first generation, second generation uh, generation Caribbean people. So um, people that are either born in the the Caribbean or their their parents were born in the Caribbean. And I feel as though when and again i'm not an expert in diasporic studies i haven't really done a whole lot of work in this field i've done some reading here and there um but i feel as though when you travel to a new place when you're put into a new place um 
there's a sense of wanting to kind of assimilate and wanting to explore that new culture. Definitely still hold on and not completely assimilate. You still want to hold on to some of your values. You go there with other people and you're, you're, you're put into a, a Jamaican community in Toronto and clearly you, you still identify with being Jamaican. But nevertheless, there's still, I would, I would assume this kind of desire to, to latch on to new identities, especially for, for youth groups of, of that period. Um, I would think that that would have something to do with why they were eager to kind of hop in, hop into the hip hop identity. Now, if what you're saying is the Jamaican community w- didn't necessarily hop into the Jama- uh, the hip hop kind of aesthetic um, and didn't grab onto that or, or gravitate towards it, um, then that changes the, the conversation a little bit. But w- when I look at Toronto hip hop early on, I do see a tie to kind of this reggae hip hop blend, and it seems fairly pronounced within Toronto hip hop. Thinking, going through your thesis and seeing that this was such a young community, and there was a, many of the the community in the '80s and '90s would have been first and second generation um, Jamaican it makes me think that that probably had something to do with their eagerness to latch on and, and kind of blend these identities. Now, again, if they're, if, if that wasn't the case, then it wasn't the case, but I, I, I feel like it, it might be. And I thought it was one of the more interesting kind of thoughts that, that kind of cultivated yeah. when I was reading the, the thesis. Anyhow, it wasn't explicitly talked about, but it was an idea that, that populated anyhow. I think, okay, I, I understand the question better now. I think it might be twofold. And, and one is um, that in the 80s, uh, the, the, the kids that were into hip hop, they might not necessarily have been into the reggae that their parents were into, right? And um, hip hop was the latest thing and it was the hot thing, like from an underground phenomenon. Um, and that's what they were into. But if they were at a hip hop jam, at one of our Nelson Styles or whatever, Monster Jams or, um, New York Engage Field, <laughs> my cat is on. Hang on a sec. <laughs> Get out of here. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and so I mean, if you're a kid and you, uh, you know, your parents are, are, are Jamaican and, um, but you don't quite listen to Bar Molly or you don't listen to reggae, be that as it may, you might be at a, uh, at one of these, uh, Ron Nelson concerts and Michigan's up there battling somebody and then breaks into Patois. I mean, you gotta recognize that and maybe exhibit some sort of local or cultural pride in, in, in the notes, even though you, you don't really, even though you don't listen to it, right? Um, uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, even before hip hop, uh, it, in the 70s, reggae music was a way for a lot of uh, Jamaicans in the city to um, connect, right? You know, they had uh, blues dances and basement parties. They would go, uh, you know, a lot of people had sound systems, and so they would be private parties on the weekend, and they would go and listen to reggae, and it was a way of connecting. But but I, I should also be clear that, you know, just because, you know, I mean, Jamaican culture is, is not monolithic. Just because you're from uh, Jamaica doesn't mean that you're, that, that, that was reggae, right? I mean, uh, you know, my, my dad's family is Scottish, but that doesn't mean I eat haggis and put it back. You know, the stereotypical Scottish yeah. thing. Um, so, um, Nishimi and, and artists like her, like, like, 
Cardinal Fasel, for example, they 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 present the a Jamaican side through downfall reggae, and that, that's a, that's a personal choice. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody is going to uh, you know present uh, the Jamaican identity in that manner. Right? Uh, um, I, I've been a Jamaican, and I'm, believe me, not everybody is into downfall <laughs> downfall reggae. That is that is. That was just how Michelle presented her, her Jamaican side, through the dancehall style beats and, and, and so forth. I should also mention that perhaps Canada in the 80s and 90s and, and to the present is, is, is a society where uh, people that have moved here from elsewhere, from other countries, feel at more, more liberty to present. Uh, you know, like Canada is constantly promoting itself as a, as a multicultural society, and that's a society that didn't previously exist in in, in decades earlier in Canada. I mean, for example, my my great grandparents came from Iceland, and uh, they worked very hard to um, try to remove their Icelandic accents because it was all about assimilation. I mean, mind you, this is a hundred years ago. Um, and you know, since Trudeau in the 1970s, uh, the whole multi- multicultural act. I, I, I think it's a society that really promotes and 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 it's, and it's beneficial. I mean, uh, and it's a good thing. I I, I would agree um, to for for new Canadians to you know hold on to the, the cultures from 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 countries that we have come from and uh, and promote them within. Within a greater society, so perhaps, perhaps uh, you see me and other artists just felt more comfortable and at, at ease uh, presenting the you know, Jamaican side in, in a society that's yeah. promoted. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I um, I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit to talk about some of your recent uh, kind of recent work and specifically the recent editorial piece you ended up doing on Toronto hip hop artist J, um, Dr. J McGee. Um, in the article, you end up noting that you came across his recordings and the work that you're doing for your doctoral studies. Um, I wanted to ask specifically, how did Dr. J. McGee's work kind of come up? Uh, how, how did you end up discovering him? Um, and then furthermore, at, at what point did you realize that there was a story worth exploring? Because I... Um, Okay, a little bit of background here. I, um, again, as somebody that's studying Canadian hip-hop, um, I... I kind of pay attention to the scene and I often end up kind of doing research and looking for different names and titles and, and whatnot. And I subscribe to search updates on sites like eBay for anything Canadian hip hop related. And I often end up coming across a lot of these almost kind of novelty rap records released by Canadian artists during the 1980s that just go completely unnoticed in the larger scheme of things. But rarely do I kind of see there as, as being a larger story at play. Um, usually it's it's just, oh, there's kind of this novelty um, Christmas and Hollis kind of rap song that, that happened in 1982 or whatever. Um, I don't really take the time, I guess, to explore that with much more depth. Um, I want to know how you ended up coming across Dr. J's uh, material, but then furthermore, at what point do you start to realize that wait, there's a story to be told here, and it's an important story to be told here, and we should we should do that story. Did you say Doctor J McGee? Wasn't it Doctor J McGee? Is that yeah, was he not it, a doctor it, afterwards? No, 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 um, no, he's not a doctor. <laughs> um, okay, my but, apologies. Um, 
No, no, no worries. I just wanted to be wanted to be clear. Um, yeah, sure. He's um, and he's not a hip hop artist either. I mean, and that's what what makes the story so interesting is that he was a uh, an R and B and gospel singer and an extremely talented one. Um, so now, as somebody that did hip hop radio starting in 1989 and was looking for music, Canadian content, somebody that was struggling for Canadian content, I would have loved to have known that these records existed, but I did not. And it's what's interesting is that even to this day, a lot of people, even in Toronto, don't know about these records and that there were indeed hip hop records being recorded in Toronto as early as 1979, uh, literally weeks after Rapper's Delight came out. And um, I first kind of was, I became familiar with these records about 20 years ago. I bought a record in Vancouver when I was DJing in Vancouver. It was called um, the Bobby Demo Band or Rapping with the Bobby Demo Band, something like that. And uh, you flip it over and it's an album and uh, you flip it over and there's all these uh, information, right? Like typical of any album and it says recorded in Toronto, Kensington Sound, so forth and so forth. And I thought, well, that's unusual. I've never heard of any rapping done in in Toronto that early, but anyway, um, and it's, it's an interesting record. There's nothing really anything special about it. It's, it sounds like a typical rap record from, you know, the early eighties. It's a live band playing, you know, disco style loops that, that, uh, with, with rapping on top. And, um, that was, that was sort of, that sort of planted the seed, but I, I didn't really go any further than that. Um, but since moving to Toronto a few years ago, I started more and more discovering these records that said Mr. Q on them there was a record called ladies delight i thought well, that's interesting ladies delight sounds like rapper's delight there's a record called dj style there's a record called party rap and they're all on a, a local record label called monica's production and the artist's name is mr q and when you listen to the lyrics it's it's standard when you listen to the records it's basically it's standard kind of rap record fare for 1979 1980 it sounds like you know Sugar, Sugar Hill Gang, Curtis Blow, you know, all the, all the copycat records that kind of came out in that era of people trying to jump on the rap trend. <clears throat> you got to remember that at the time, rap was, I mean, you got to think of it in, in context of 1979. I mean, rap wasn't even really its own thing. Hip hop wasn't even really its own established genre. When these records came out, they were largely regarded as just disco records with people rap, people talking on top, right? Sure. And um, so these Mr. Q records that came out, when you listen to them, um, the, there's nothing in the lyrics that's really specific about Toronto, except one, and that's party rap. And it's late in the record, and Mr. Q starts rapping about Mississauga, and he mentions T.O. I'm thinking, and when I first heard this for the first time in like 2015, I think, 2016, uh, these gotta be from Toronto. How come this isn't written anywhere? How come, the, like, nobody seemed to even know about it, right? And in my current research on early 80s hip hop in Toronto, I have a stand, one of my standard questions that I ask people is, what are the first, what are the earliest examples of hip hop records in Toronto that you remember? And nobody mentions these. And it's because they were poorly distributed, poorly marketed. Um, and I don't, I doubt they were even on the radio and they just kind of came and went, but between the Mr. Q records and a few other records that came out after that I mentioned Bobby Demo, 
um, it's actually two people, Bobby uh, Boyer and Demo Cates. Um, there, there's probably a good 20 or 25 rap records that were produced by Monica's production and um, the label that followed, Scorpio Records, uh, that are early examples of rap records, but in recorded and produced in Toronto, which is, which is amazing. And what's interesting to me is that they seem to be, even though they were recorded very early, um, they seem to be, there seems to be a, like a great disconnect between them and Toronto's hip hop scene. And even though that, even though that they are early examples of, of rap records in Canada and, and Toronto, I, they're, they're not nearly as important as the work that came later, Michigan Me and Meister Fresh West and, and, and everyone else. But the, the simple fact that these records exist is a story. So by just doing a lot of, you know, sleuthing around online and cold calling people <laughs> and trying to find out who Mr. Q was, um, I, yeah, I, I found out that it was a guy named Jay McGee living in Flint, Michigan, who was also a singer. And I, um, I, I called a few of the names that were on that, that first record I mentioned, the Bobby Dima record. And I talked to an engineer named Dan Durbin. And he directed me to Vasey Tayeb, who owns Kensington Sound. And Kensington Sound is a recording studio that uh, a lot of these records were recorded at, and it's still active today. I interviewed Vasey and played him some of these records, and he was like, I don't remember any of these, but we must have done them because it says Kensington Sound right on the jacket. And I told him that I was trying to find out the identity of Mr. Q, and I think it was Jay McGee. And he said, I know Jay McGee. We're friends on Facebook. We're still friends. And he gave McGee my phone number, and lo and behold, in 2017, McGee called me and said, yeah, you heard that um, you're interested in knowing more about Mr. Q and all that. And I'm like, yes, are you Mr. Q? He goes, yes. (laughs) My mind was blown, Alex, I'm telling you. Like, like, it was just like, you're Mr. Q. You're the one that's rapping about T.O. on Party Rap. He goes, yeah. And then uh, we ended up doing an interview. About a week later, it was a proper interview, and uh, for about an hour, and he explained to me, uh, and it's all in that article I wrote, and he explained to me that, well, yeah, I mean, it was just a thing on the side. I was a singer, right? So that's why the that's why the records don't say Jay McGee. They say Mr. Q, because I was trying to um, formulate a career as, as a singer. And uh, so, you know, when George Lewis, the owner of uh, the record label, um, he and Monica, this is like Monica, they, uh, they own Monica's Cosmetics. The store is still there. The record label is dead, though. It's been dead for 35 years. Um, George asked him to rap on some lyrics, you know, rap on some records, and he said, like, yeah, sure, I can rap, no problem. And that's how those records came to be. But they didn't make any sort of noise, like, anywhere. In fact, if you go on Discogs, <clears throat> if you go on Discogs, um, to, to buy some, um, almost all of them are located out up in, in Europe for some reason. Uh, so a lot of them made their way over there. Uh, I'm not sure why, but, uh, they, they, that, that's where they went. Um, and here's, here's a key thing that I gotta mention too. None of the dates on the records, there's no dates on the records, uh, as far as the Mr. Key records. But his very first record, Ladies Delight, I pinpointed to 1979 because um, I found a review of the record in uh, in, a, in an English magazine called Record Mirror, and there was a disco column that the author had that viewed Ladies Delight in November of 1979. 
the same column would be Rapazolite in September of 79. So think of that time frame there. Yeah, you were to press uh, a record, get uh, it overseas, because you said right. it was an English publication that published it, right? The review? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah so, record the music as a response to Rapper's Delight, press it up on a like a reasonable format, uh, which yep. would have been vinyl at that period of time, ship it overseas, have people listen to it, and then have people take notice enough in order to actually write a review for it um, within a couple-month period. That's That's mind-boggling. It is. Especially at such an independent scale. Like, if a Blondie or something were to do something similar, then of course people are going to be talking about it overseas, but this right. is a this is a super indie, obscure record. Right, and that's why it's such a fascinating story to me, because it's a record label housed in a beauty salon run by a, uh, a couple, a Jamaican-Canadian couple, George and Monica Lewis. George also had a record label and sold records out of the basement. He had the, an idea to record a rap record. I guess he had heard Rapper's Delight somewhere, somehow, whether it was on a local radio station or a Buffalo radio station or maybe at a club in Toronto. Rounded up some local musicians, recorded the song, and then asked Jay to come in and rap on it, and then press it up and send it to England in time for it to be reviewed in the November 1979 article. I mean, it, it, it's the whole story is, is fascinating to me. And then to this day, these records aren't very well known. It's, <laughs> like it's, it's really an amazing story. It really is. And, uh, and that's why, um, that's why I, it was worth investigating and taking, you know, I've been investigating the whole Monica's production and Scorpio Records story for, for years now. And I didn't just find that information about it being, um, uh, released in November 79, uh, you know, right away. That took, that took a lot. Of, of you know scouring British music magazines to locate it, and not only that, there are many reviews. The the, the author of that the column he reviewed a lot of stuff that came out of Monica. So George Lewis must have been sending him stuff on a regular basis. I, I should also say that the records also made their way down in New York because I I interviewed um, a gentleman by the name of George Steed, who was a drummer, and he drummed on on a lot of these records. And he said that he would sometimes accompany George to New York um, just for the fun of it, while uh, you know George would go to different uh, distribution outlets in New York to to sell his records. It's a fascinating story, man. And and I'll tell you, there's a lot more to be told, but um, it's uh, I've tried a couple times to interview uh, the Lewis family, and uh, they don't want to be interviewed. So there's so much more that I I, I wish I could tell you, but um, to get their personal, you know, recollection of the story would be fantastic. But um, I wasn't able to do it. Maybe somebody else can. But uh, you know, uh, when I first approached Monica um, uh, about it, uh, she, she just wasn't interested. And uh, and I'm not the only one because there was a reggae documentary that came out a couple of years ago called uh, Shella Records, and um, it's about a record that came out on. Monica's record, the reggae record, and a local filmmaker was trying to find the, the name of, of the artist because it was all very vague. And he went in to, to Monica to try to get, uh, get the information, and he was promptly, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, told to go away. Yeah, so, interview. You know, but some people just don't want to talk, you know, and that's their that's their um, that's their prerogative. Not everybody wants to to talk about the past. 
Yeah, it's a fascinating story. You mentioned earlier this this idea of a disconnect between a lot of these uh, a lot of these artists that were kind of making these uh, you can call them novelty rap records, but maybe that's uh, inf- inflammatory or defamatory to a certain degree. But um, but these kind of obscure rap singles that were coming out in the early '80s before artists like Maestro and Mishimi really took center stage, um, and there's this kind of disconnect between that community and the hip hop community that comes a little bit later. Um, I wanted to to ask about that and, and ask if you could expand on that. Do you think it was just because these people like Jay McGee didn't necessarily identify as being hip hop and having that hip hop identity. Rather, in Jay's case, he he identified being a singer. Um, do you think that had something to do with that disconnect between these artists and, I guess, the Toronto hip hop community and hip hop scene? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, per- perhaps if McGee was trying to make it as a as a rapper, as a hip hop artist, and then perhaps. I mean, there was no real, there was no infrastructure for a hip hop scene in Toronto at the time. In fact, um, you know, a, a lot of black music at the time in the late seventies and early eighties was, was thrown under like the, the, the disco umbrella or the funk umbrella. There wasn't really a whole lot of separation, um, as far as, uh, as far as like, is this a hip hop record? Is it a funk record? Is it a disco record? It was just, it was just a, it was just a record basically. Yeah. And, um, you know, even Ron Nelson, when he first started his show, Fantastic Voyage, it wasn't a hip hop show per se. He played hip hop, but he also played a lot of funk. And that's why it's called Fantastic Voyage. That's the name of a song by Lakeside. And the whole sort of hip hop thing came a little bit later when the genre started to kind of emerge as more of like a, a separate from other genres. The other thing I should mention is that the Toronto hip hop scene, it it emerged more so through the efforts of people like Ron Nelson and the sound systems, the DJ sound systems, and artists like Nishimi and 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 Rumble and Strong and, and Dream Warriors that they fashioned themselves as as hip hop artists. And Ron Nelson had a you know, and Fantastic Voyage became a an exclusive hip hop radio show, and he put on hip hop concerts. The, the the genre began to emerge because of their efforts, and at a time when when the Mr. T records came out, there was, a, you know, I, I don't think George Lewis, the record producer, or Jay McGee or any other artists that were producing those records, they they weren't aspiring to be hip hop artists. They were just making records to make a buck, and I don't want that to sound crass or anything, but you know, you, it's a check. And if somebody sure. asks you to, hey, do you want to rap on this record? It's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I mean, that's how the rap, that's how Sugar Hill getting started. <laughs> right? You know, they, they enough, were approached yeah. by a record producer that said, we want you to rap on this track. And only two out of the three members were actual rappers. You know, so, uh, that's, um, I, I think Dan Charnas probably talked about this in, 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 in his interview where, um, you know, it's the, the, the culture isn't as pure. Uh, a pure kind of under uh, grassroots form, as we sometimes like to, 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 to think it is. You know, there's always uh, monetary elements to it, right? There's always like a money. <laughs> money is 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 lurking beneath somewhere in in most in most uh, ventures. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that and that's what these early Mr. Key records were. I mean, they were. Yeah. It was George Lewis was like, oh, this this is the latest thing. Let's hop on it. Let's hop on it. Sure. 
Lastly, before I end up getting you to go, I know that your current work lies in documenting the early years of the Toronto hip-hop scene, and I know we kind of briefly touched on it um, throughout the conversation here, but because the work hasn't been published, I at least haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but are you able to divulge a little bit about kind of what you're doing in this work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, my my research centers on uh, the emergence of Toronto's hip-hop scene in the 80s and also trying to locate the earliest examples of hip-hop culture in Toronto. And over about the last five years or so, it's really started to coalesce. And I have four main chapters that cover four different areas of, of, this, uh, of the scene and its emergence. One is what we just talked about, those early hip-hop records. Now, I have Mr. Q and Monica's production, Jamie E and so forth. Now, even though there was a, like a, a somewhat sort of a disconnect between their records and what emerged later, those records still existed, right? They, they, they were still there. That's a fact, these records. So there must have been something kind of bubbling in order for those records to, to happen. It, it's also an interesting story because it's, um, it, it, to me, it's like, a, like sort of an ultimate Canadian story. A Jamaican Canadian record producer, has a record store in a, in a beauty shop. He hires a guy from Flint, Michigan, who's a singer to rap on a record by, um, you know, by a bunch of local Canadian musicians producing the record. And then he puts it out. And, uh, it's a, it's a uniquely Canadian story, I think. Um, that's one chapter. And then, uh, another chapter I have on the, uh, the sound systems that were, uh, so prolific in Toronto in the 1980s. Sound systems like Sunshine Sound, Kilowatt, um, uh, Doc Sound, uh, oh, there's several more that are escaping me. A Sheik Dynasty, can't forget Sheik Dynasty. These are uh, mobile DJ groups that would tour around the city and perform at uh, high schools, community centers, and so forth. They would do outside sort of block parties. And these DJ uh, groups, um, they, uh, they provided a lot of the first opportunities for local MCs to rap. Uh, case in point, Nishimi and Sunshine Sound. So some of, like, before she was even like a noted, noted battle rapper, she got some, uh, live experience from performing at the Sunshine Sound party. So that's another chapter. Okay. Of course, uh, I, I can't forget Ron Nelson. There's an entire chapter on Ron Nelson and his, uh, efforts as a radio DJ and as a promoter. He's extremely important to the scene. And then lastly is the, um, sort of the commercial breakthrough, so to speak, in the late 80s with artists like Maestro Fresh West, Michi Mead, Dream Warriors, uh, and so forth. Uh, and, sure. and, uh, and Maestro, uh, I mean, I've been talking a lot about, about Michi Mead, but Maestro is, uh, is, uh, extremely important as well because he, with the help of, um, local media, like Much Music, helped really, um, spread hip hop from coast to coast. Um, you know, like a couple of years later, like Hammer and Vanilla Ice, they, they really kind of attracted uh, like a, a, a wider audience to hip hop. But even before that in Canada, uh, Moisture Fresh West really broke open a lot of doors. I mean, as a kid that was listening to hip hop in high school, as like one of a handful of kids. After What Your Backbone Slide came out, then everybody was listening to hip hop. He, Meister Fresh West was that important as far as exposing hip hop culture to a wider audience in Canada. So those, yeah, those are sort I can of the attest four. to that as well. Yeah. Like even throughout my own interviews that I do within the hip hop community. And I guess this isn't so much in terms of the general audience, wider audience, um, but within the hip hop community, 
Um, and I guess it kind of is because a lot of people that I speak to that kind of grew up in the, the early 90s, uh, late 80s, a lot of times their first introduction to hip-hop culture, because that's always a question that I ask during my interviews, a lot of times it ends up being Maestro Fresh West. He's a he's a figure that brought a lot of people into hip-hop culture in a pretty meaningful way um, and in a sincere way, whereas I think there's a lot of people that were brought in through acts like MC Hammer, for example, or Vanilla Ice cool. that maybe had a passing interest in hip hop. And maybe that was the case, too, for a lot of people with Maestro Fresh West. Um, and albeit the people that I speak to naturally actually had a more dedicated passion for hip hop just because that's why I'm interviewing them. But uh, I do find that the people that um, were listening to, to Maestro, they, they really ended up latching onto hip hop in a, in a really meaningful way and in, in at least in the cases that I speak to, they, they obviously, they wanted to do something with that, uh, with that passion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of hip hop fans, uh, you know, come to hip hop through, uh, you know, commercial, you know, I wouldn't Successes, call yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't call myself like a commercial artist, but yeah, but let you back on slide was definitely a commercial success. I mean, how many people were introduced to hip hop through rappers alike? I mean, I, I was in 1986, I heard Randy and C walk this way and then uh, changed my life forever. I mean, I was already sort of familiar with hip hop, but that record and Raising Hell and then uh, the album and then Life with the Old DC Boys, those two albums, I mean, that just sort of changed. That, that, like, that's not an overstatement. That, that, that changed my life. I mean, to the, I'm yeah. now in my late 40s and I'm now, I'm still DJing and uh, I'm researching hip hop <laughs> as a job. So, I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, like, like, yeah, like you said, I mean, a lot of people are introduced through, we're introduced through hip hop through commercial means, but a lot of people maybe even left, right? They might have, oh, oh, yeah, that hammer, you know, that's a great record, or even, you know, records today, you know, the kid might be introduced to hip hop through, I don't know, uh, Post Malone or something, and then go, ah, I'm not really interested in this anymore. But there might sure. be other people that are, intro are introduced by a Post Malone or a, or a Megan Thee Stallion or whatever, and then, and start digging into it and it's like oh there's this and there's this and there's this and there's so much more to it than just this artist Fair so you know, something to be said about you know commercial recordings um, or commercial successes introducing people to a genre but then you know and then some leave they, they, they stick around and then other people realize that oh there's so much more to this this work this book that you're producing um, are you aiming it towards an academic press or something more for general audiences well, it's it's a it's a PhD dissertation, so um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yes, yeah. So it would um, first. I got to finish the dissertation, and then down the road, I would like to turn it into a book. And yeah, I, I think as somebody that wants to be in academia full time and 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 continue doing scholarly research, I think we'd probably be apt to um, try to get it on a on a on a academic publisher, a university press, um, but. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that I I wouldn't want to also write uh, a book or or perhaps more articles like like I did on Mr. Q through non-academic means. Um, I, I think it's important for I think it's really important for academia to do their best to um, publish for a general audience because if, if you're just publishing for uh, other academics, I, I, I think you're uh, really doing the, the research a disservice. You know, if you write in an overly flowery, flowery academic style, I, I don't think 
I, I think you're doing the research a disservice. I, I think it's best for just for for it to be um, uh, available uh, to, to 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 everybody and anybody that that would be interested in the topic. You don't want to scare people away by talking about you know. Um, you, you mentioned Derrida on the back flap or something. <laughs> this is a, a Marxian analysis of yada yada. It's like, okay, do that as it may. You might want to keep that to the inside and not the back flap to attract, you know, the, just a regular reader in Starbucks or in Indigo looking <laughs> looking for something to read. You know, I totally agree. I think I and I think about this. Uh this aspect of this kind of conversation a lot um, in terms of my own work and how I want my own work to, to kind of live. Um, I, I'm clearly indebted to the, the hip hop community here in Canada. Anytime I end up doing an interview, I'm taking somebody's time and they're volunteering their time in order to speak to me. And I have a responsibility to them in order to tell their story. And I think furthermore, I have a responsibility to tell their story in a way that's most accessible to, to the general audience. Um, so yeah, that means a general audience book over an academic book in a lot of cases, but I think even more so I've had the conversation of, well, is even a general audience book, is that really the right home for this information in the story to, to stay? I want to do it because I like writing and I want to produce a book and I've wanted to for some time, so I'm going to do it anyways. But is that really the be-all, end-all of, of this project? Um, do I make an audiobook to make it more accessible? Do I make a documentary? Because I think a lot of people within, like, I, I understand the hip-hop community in Canada. They've all went on. They've done their own things. But um, I still think in a lot of cases, there's there's a lot of people in this community that, that aren't necessarily going to end up picking up a 500-page book on their bedside table and read it. Um, mm. Maybe a documentary ends up being the the better home for it, right? Um, I'm I'm not sure really where the place is, but I do know that there there must be an effort to to make it accessible and to to think critically of of who your audience is going to be and if that audience is really going to end up servicing the community that you that you want to service the best way. Um, I, I just ended up writing a thesis for my university as well on the Victoria hip hop scene, uh, well, Vancouver Island hip hop scene more broadly, um, including Nanaimo and, and Gabriel Island and Victoria. And um, I did that for the same kind of purposes as you. I, I think it's something that is kind of missing. I, I don't think that story's really been told before. And going through, um, and one, I enjoy reading scholarly uh, writing. Um, I think a lot of the ideas are, are interesting and worth talking about. Um, but also I mean, I'm in university, so I have to end up doing something and that's the reason why I ended up doing it. But, um, but yeah, I, I definitely, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that being the, the be all end all of that research, um, without producing something more tangible, more accessible for the, the community that I want to end up serving. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope that's clear, but, uh, but yeah, I think yeah, about no. this a lot. I no, I I agree. I, I think I think the writing should be as accessible as possible. And uh, if it's um, if it's written in a way that is really just for other academics, then I, you're going to limit how many people read it. And 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 like you said, you'll be doing a, a disservice to to the people that you interviewed because um, I'm sure um, you know they would if they're willing to tell tell their story to you. Uh, I'm sure that they would want 
more people to hear it than us, <laughs> right? And just yeah, other if they're telling me their story, story then they're telling me for a reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I'm I'm really excited for the for the new work. Um, and for those listening, if you haven't taken the time out to check out the previous work that Scobie's done, definitely take your time out and do so. Um, I think it's all really thought provoking and engaging. And I've enjoyed reading the the material that you've published so far. Um, but this early Toronto report seems seems fascinating. You mentioned a few names earlier, people like Mark Campbell, for example, Charity Marsh. Um, these people have done studies on Canadian hip hop more broadly. Um, the We Still Hear collection that came out and we interviewed both uh i interviewed both uh, mark campbell and charity marsh on the collection but um it's it's doesn't necessarily have that foundational history text of well what just happened in this community and it, like let's get the let's get the foundations painted first um and it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing in terms of the early toronto hip-hop scene and i'm really excited for that to that to be a thing. Um, I like Everything Remains Raw, the photo collection that, that Mark Campbell ended up putting out as well. Um, and that's a fascinating piece, but there's there's clearly more detail that, that needs to be told there. And it sounds to me like you're you're getting at that detail. Um, I, I'm, I'm super stoked for the project. Cool. And I appreciate that. And, and, it, and by, by no means is, is it meant to be like a definitive story or anything, but it's just um, you know, because that would be difficult to do, perhaps impossible. But it's just, I, I, I just want to contribute and hopefully I can contribute to the, you know, the broader picture of, of Canadian hip hop history by providing some details of, of early scene in Toronto. That's the goal. I love it. I can't wait for it to come out and I'll definitely end up reading it when it does. I'd love to have you back on the podcast whenever it does come out and I get a chance to read it just so we can go over some of the kind of nitty gritty details with more with more depth. And I'm sure I'd be able to, to kind of hold a conversation for an hour or so on the on the work. So I'd love to have you back on whenever that does end up coming out. That'd be great. Of course, Alex. Anytime. Perfect. Uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on. We'll definitely end up staying in touch. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you, and have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right.